I've been uh, looking forward to preaching on this passage for several weeks now, and um, kind of pretty excited to talk about this really interesting story, this Jesus story that is found in several Gospels, but we're going to be reading it from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15 today. But before that, we do that, would you pray with me? Oh God, we are here this morning with lots of things in our hearts. We're concerned about our friends, and we're concerned about our family, and we're concerned about our neighbors, and we're just kind of concerned about this next season of the year and what it's going to bring or not bring. I ask, God, that this morning you would strengthen our faith. Remove any hindrance of your spirit from our lives, God, so that we could sense you and we could know you and help us, O oh God, to trust you more. We pray this prayer on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of our friends and family and neighbors. And we pray it by the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read to you now uh, the story of Jesus and the Canaanite or Syrophoenician woman. It's Matthew chapter 15, uh, starting with verse 21, and we'll end uh, with verse 28. From there, Jesus went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from those territories came and shouted, Show me mercy, son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. But he didn't respond to her at all. His disciples came and urged him, Send her away. She keeps shouting out after us. Jesus replied, I've been sent only to the lost sheep. Only the people of Israel. But she knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He replied, it is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. Jesus answered her, woman, you have great faith. It will be just as you wish. And right then, her daughter was healed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And may God give us wisdom and courage for interpretation. And may God give us wisdom and courage to apply the truth of this scripture to our lives. Amen. There are two big questions that arise for me from this gospel reading. And I want to warn you ahead of time that as I ask these questions and try to answer them, there will be more than a few boats that will be rocked. But that's okay. Because we're a people who know that God is okay with our questions and is okay with our wrestling. 
So my first question is this. Can Jesus learn? I know that's an odd question to ask. Because on the one hand, we quickly want to say, like, sure, why not? But then, at least for me, this theological worrying starts to happen where I start to think about the implications of saying, yes, Jesus can learn. Because if Jesus can learn, there's this voice inside of my head that says, well, does that mean that Jesus isn't perfect? Does that mean Jesus isn't complete? Does that mean Jesus isn't sinless? And then there's this whole cadre of theological police officers that start marching down the long aisle of my mind. Maybe it's a short aisle, but I like to think that it's long. And start to destroy my imagination. I ask this question because at the heart of this challenging and frankly, to me, somewhat disturbing passage is a key interpretive question. Did the Canaanite woman come to Jesus as a test or was she coming to persuade the Lord? If it was a test, which is probably the more traditional reading of this passage, the one that we've heard the most, then Jesus didn't really mean what he said. You know, when he said this whole thing about coming for the lost sheep of Israel, if it was a test to see if she had enough faith to persist, then he didn't really mean that. Let alone calling her a dog. All of this, if all of this was just a test, a way of bringing the harvest of her faith that God had already planted in her, is really difficult because I want to believe that Jesus always means what he says. In fact, many commentators will draw our attention to this idea that the word that is translated dog is actually the diminutive form of that word, meaning little dog or puppy. I think we favor this interpretation because it saves Jesus from looking like a jerk. We want for him to be the all-knowing, kind, patient, loving, understanding healer and Messiah, not the all-knowing faith tester or drill sergeant whose job is to tear this woman down only to build her back up. It's probably obvious to you, if you know me, that I do not prefer that particular interpretation. So the other possibility, of course, is that Jesus' own sense of God's kingdom is challenged and stretched and enhanced by his encounter with this fierce and faithful woman. Maybe that is Jesus is serious. That is, he believes he was sent only to the Israelites. Maybe, just maybe, when Jesus says to her, I was only sent to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. He meant that and he believed that to his core. And this fierce and faithful woman shook him and expanded what he understood his mission to be. I like that interpretation. I like the idea 
that Jesus' world is rocked by our faith because it fits within my understanding that God is in relationship with us. And it goes all the way back to my favorite story from the Hebrew Bible of Jacob wrestling with the angel of God and having his name changed to Israel. This woman follows in that great tradition of wrestling with God. So she comes the way only a mother could do. With ferocity, with intentionality, with intensity, because her child is sick and she wants her child to be healed. I want to take a minute to remind you that we are her. Oftentimes we read the scriptures and we put ourselves in the place of the lost sheep. We are not the lost sheep. We would have been her. If we had been there witnessing this story, we would have been outsiders watching from afar, potentially and probably afraid to approach Jesus, knowing that we are Gentiles and he is a Jew and he came for the Jews. And when we read the scriptures, understanding this is not our story. Jesus, in this moment, rocks, his world is rocked, and the disciples who are there, their world is rocked because he invites us in. Which is astounding to the people who watched and saw. But it doesn't end the debate because in the book of Acts, you see all throughout the book of Acts that Peter and Paul are in an argument over whether the, the Jesus story, the gospel, is for everyone or if it's just for the Jews. And there's this moment that Peter has a vision from God where the sheet comes down and there's all kinds of animals on it that are unclean. And God says to Peter, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, by no means. He starts to wrestle with God. He says, by no means will I kill and eat. Nothing unclean has ever touched my mouth. And it never will, because I am a faithful Jew and I love you, God. And God says, don't you ever call anything that I have created unclean. Peter awakes from this vision, is invited to Cornelius' house, who is a Gentile. He goes to the Gentile's house and he begins to eat the unclean food. And when confronted about it, he says, God told me to never call a person unclean. Think about the transition. Peter is like, I'm not going to eat unclean food. God says, don't call anything I created unclean. And Peter takes the next step to say, no person is unclean. Following in the line of Jesus, having his understanding of the kingdom of God expanded to include us in it as well. But make no mistake, we are the outsiders. I watched this last week um, for, I don't know, maybe the second or third time, my big fat Greek wedding. Has anybody seen that? There is a scene in my big fat Greek wedding where uh, the uh, man who is marrying into the Greek family, he and his fiance and his mom and dad show up at his fiance's family home and there are 
there's this giant party going on and there are Greek people dancing and eating and they're ready to have a big party and the non-Greek mom and dad are obviously the outsiders. And they are awkward and they are weird and they are acting strange and they're basically embarrassing themselves until the family convinces them that they are truly welcome there. Have you ever been to a party or to a place where you are the outsider. I went one time. Michelle and I, uh, when we I started seminary, they had this big party for all of these incoming uh, first-year seminary students. And so Michelle and I went, and we had got, like, just our family situation was different. We were married. We had two little kids. We were the only people who showed up at this party that were married, and uh, they had childcare at the house, but my two daughters were the only two people in childcare, and everybody kind of already knew each other because it was like the fourth day of orientation, and uh, and I was going to orientation at a different time than everybody, and it was the, one of the most awkward experiences I've ever had. Michelle and I walked in, and I'm usually pretty good in a room full of people I don't know, but for some reason. I was not good in this situation. And so we both grabbed a drink, drank about half of it, and then I was like, let's get out of here. Jesus was witnessing a woman as an outsider being persistent that I will not be treated as an outsider. My child is sick, and Lord, please do something. And she trusted the heart of Jesus, the heart of this man she had heard so much about. She trusted and she persisted and she appealed to his best interest. And in the process of that, I believe with my whole heart that Jesus' mind and imagination was blown way outside of the margins that he had set up to where we are now welcomed in. But because we are welcomed in, we absolutely have to welcome in other people that don't fit what we think a good and clean and right person is. Jesus is not just for us. I know our stories and our songs and the way that we've been taught is that Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. But what we also have to remember is that Jesus loves them also, whoever them are. Whoever the outsider is for you, Jesus is for them, at least as much as Jesus is for you. Which leads me to my second question. If Jesus can learn, which I definitely think Jesus can, the next question is, can we? Can we learn every single time in my whole United Methodist adult life that I've gone to a denominational meeting, whether that be annual conference or something bigger or something smaller, it feels like every time somebody stands on the stage and talks about the decline in membership of the United Methodist Church and mainline churches in general. How do we start to attract more young people? How do we get people to start coming to our churches so that we can get back to the old days, which is understandable because if you start looking at the numbers, 
every single Christian denomination in the United States of America is on a steady decline. Even some of the denominations who would say they're not, it's just because they count differently, Southern Baptists. But for so long, our patterns of worship and the way that we have done things for generations has worked. And so, why would we change anything? But if we take a cue from Jesus' encounter with this woman, what we do is start to wonder with people how a community of faith might be more engaging and helpful as they seek to connect their life to something bigger. I've told this story a lot, but I'll tell it again. Denver, Colorado, is the second least religious city in the United States. Portland, Oregon is number one. And when I was in seminary in Denver, I can remember very clearly going to soccer practice with three-year-old Elise and talking to parents. And the questions reminded me of being a freshman in college. Hey, where are you from? Because nobody's from Denver. Everybody moves there. Oh, I'm from New Mexico. No, not Albuquerque. Everybody only knows of Albuquerque or Santa Fe. And I'd say, I'm from this little town in southeastern New Mexico. The one with the cave. Yeah, the one with the cave. Well, what brought you here? Oh, I'm here for graduate school because if, I'm he- if I said I'm here from, for seminary, ah, that's just confusing. I'm here in grad school. What are you studying? Theology, because who in the world knows, Fran, what a master of divinity is anyway? So I'd say I'm studying theology. Oh, interesting. What are you going to do with that degree? Oh, I- I'm a pastor. A Christian pastor? Like in a church? I- I've never met a pastor before. And the doors are blown wide open to real conversation. Fast forward three years, and I'm living in Abilene, Texas, where literally I took a picture of the buckle of the Bible belt. It was a 10-foot tall, two 10-foot tall tablets of the Ten Commandments by a hotel bar, letting you know, as you entered, what you were walking past. Go to soccer practice. Oh, hey, I hear you're new in town. Yeah, we're new in town. What brought you here? Are you in the Air Force? They couldn't really tell by the beard and hair, I guess. No, I'm not in the Air Force. I'm a pastor at St. Paul United Methodist Church. Okay. Conversation over. There was no curiosity. But what I remember now is that I wasn't very curious about them either. I was super curious about people in Denver. I think this woman's persistence, Jesus saw as faith, and as persistence, and as ferocity, and I think he became incredibly curious. So what would happen, Morningstar, if this week you committed to having one conversation with a person who does not go to church, and you just simply ask them, why not? I'm curious, why don't you go to church? And I don't think you're going to have to look very far. It could be to the chair sitting right next to you right now. It could be your next-door neighbor 
It could be your son or your daughter or your niece or your nephew or your grandchild. It could be your best friend. It wouldn't be hard just to say like, hey, I'm, I'm just interested. My faith means a whole lot to me. Why don't you go to church? And whatever the answer is, email that to me. I hope my email inbox, Fran, is flooded this week with people saying, I asked so-and-so, you don't even have to tell me who it is, my friend, a relative, whoever, that doesn't go to church, and this is what they told me. And then, and then, we have to be ready and willing to have our minds blown and expanded of what church can be. Because remember, we're the outsiders. We have forgotten that we are the outsiders to this thing. We act like we're the insiders, but we're not. We're the Canaanite woman. We're the people who've been invited into the story. And I think because of that, we should be even more willing to invite people in, but not in some kind of like, hey, if you died tonight, do you know where you're going tomorrow morning? You know, like none of that sort of thing. More out of curiosity and hope because that way of doing the asking is like building a wall. I want us to be on a trampoline. You know the house with the trampoline that every kid in the neighborhood wants to go to? That's what our faith should be like. It should be invitational. It should be fun. It should have questions, not all the answers. This woman is inspiring. She's our woman. She represents us, the outsiders. And we have to remember that we are the outsiders because when we start thinking we're the insiders, then we put up walls and we start doing like the disciples did. Tell that person to go away. And we may not do it in such overt ways. It may be more covert and quiet and secretive, like we're not going to change we can't paint the room this color because, oh my gosh, that doesn't feel comfortable to me. What if we did the carpet like that to make people feel more comfortable? What, what's going to happen? I promise the church wouldn't burn down. If we started singing different songs, if we changed our patterns of worship, if we started worshiping in different places, if we started new services in different places for new people... The place is not going to burn down. What will happen is we will see a bigger, fuller version of the kingdom of God that Jesus saw that particular day. And it's not easy. It's not easy work. But I know, Morning Star, I know that you're up for it. Because when we get right down to it, I know that you don't simply care about this church and the people who are already here. You do care about each other with deep amounts of love, and it's so impressive and great to be part of. But what I also know about you that tells me you're up for this task is that you care about people who are not part of this faith community. And you care about their questions, and you care about their insights, and you care about their strengths. And I know that you're up for the task. Just 
as our Lord and Savior was up for the task of inviting us in. In the name of our Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer.